Well, it's good to see everyone today, and uh, welcome, especially new people. We love having guests with us. We're glad you're with us. So today we are continuing our Questioning God series. We're answering the question, hasn't science disproved Christianity? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Now, my contention throughout all this whole series has been that I think deep down everyone's searching for something spiritual. Everyone wants to believe in something transcendent. So the idea that there's a, a loving God in heaven who made you, who cares about you, who wants to save you from evil, who's interested in your flourishing, you know, that idea will never stop drawing people towards questioning the existence of God and questioning faith and exploring it and seeing is it real. But even with that desire and even with those promises and those ideas, there are still major barriers. And these are, you know, this series, everyone's got these questions, at least one of these questions, if not multiple, if not all of these questions. We, we grapple with these questions from time to time. And this is a big one today. And so this is a barrier for us. So we're trying to lower the barriers to help people find faith, but also to strengthen our own faith. I'm continuing to draw content from uh, Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, which I would highly recommend. Uh, also other references, lots of different references as well. Uh, today I'm going to be preaching from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It'll come up on the screen, and also uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 as well. Before I read that, let me just set this up real quick. This first part of the Bible here, Genesis chapter 1, is extremely well known. Some of the most famous verses and passages in the Bible, really. It tells us the origin of all things, that God made everything. He is the highest original source behind all things. And herein lies the subject matter for today. Because won't people claim or say that, well, science now gives us a perfectly good explanation of existence, of the origin of life, so we don't need God to explain that. Hasn't evolution debunked creationism? Haven't, haven't, can't we clearly see that all the supernatural claims of the Bible, that they're just the, the result of backwards civilizations that didn't have any science, and now we, we have science, well, we know better, just because Bill Nye, the science guy, says so. How do we respond to this? Let's pray, and then we're going to use our brains. Jesus, we pray, we pray that you would help us use our brains today, and uh, we pray that we would learn profound truth from your word and that uh, for anyone who's doubting, in, especially in this subject, that you would really convince them, really help them, uh, change their mind. And uh, for those who aren't in the Christian faith, bring them in. And for those whose faith is struggling, strengthen it. Uh, but Lord, help us all to shine the light of your grace that we might help those uh, who don't yet believe to find faith in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's read here Genesis chapter 1, the first three verses. It says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is God's Word. Now, the Bible starts off with this idea. It says, in the beginning, dot, 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 God. In the beginning, dot, 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 God. It starts off with God. The idea of God, whenever you use the label God, what you're describing is you're saying, all right, the highest source, the, the, the 
original source of all things, the thing that I can imagine, I'm gonna, whatever that is, I'm going to stick the label God on it. That's God. That's what people of faith, that's what we say. Now, people who deny God um, and people who um, don't take God very seriously, like the, the pesky YouTube algorithms and our tech overlords, all of those people who deny God uh, maybe mock Christians and might say, well, who created God? Who created God? And I don't think people realize that in this question is some inherent logic problem that undermines their own thinking. Because essentially, we're, it's, it's, the question could be turned back, reflected back towards the asker, and, and the person of faith can say, well, what triggered the Big Bang? What came before that? And uh, the question, the response to that might be, well, it's, uh, you know, everyone knows it's a, it's a singularity, right? Or a, cosmic egg floating through the universe, uh, made of pre-matter, right? Pretty obvious. Um, one of the uh, mystical interpret or, or answers to this question is, is the idea that the world is supported by a turtle. You heard this before, that the idea that the world is supported by a turtle, that's one of the, the mystical ancient answers to the, the origin of all things. And the, then the question comes, well, what's underneath the turtle? And it's, well, it's the, the answer is, well, it's just turtles all the way down. And my hope was always that they were ninja turtles, because that would be cooler and more interesting and more plausible, maybe. But this is a conundrum that we face that you can keep asking, you can keep asking the question, well, what came before the thing that you're saying was the original thing? What came before that? You can keep asking that question until one person is willing to say, all right, they're going to stop and be willing to say, all right, what came first? What came first? What is the first thing? And uh, science actually is interesting. Science didn't used to believe that the universe had a beginning. Scientific consensus was that the universe is just there, it's just eternal, there was no beginning. But now uh, scientists changed their mind on this. They now believe you can pinpoint, you can pretty accurately, they say, look at the time period and, and go back and say there is a beginning point of the universe. The universe has a birthday to it. Right, that's now scientific consensus. The universe has a birthday. So then it's a very rational, very understandable question to say, what was happening the day before the universe's birthday? What was going on there? If there's a fixed point in time, it's not just completely eternal. What was there? And so that, to me, it makes the question of who created God kind of a, a, not a very intelligent question in, in, in my mind, because essentially if you, if you were to answer it and say, well, oh yeah, my bad, you know, uh, God's dad created God. You know, then you would have, you know, then you have Papa God, you know, Grandpa God. And then, you know, then you're like, well, I just, let's just call him God because then he's the original source rather than the other one that we thought was the original source. So that's, that's, that's always, it's not very smart because it's, it's dismissing the, 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 the conclusion of people of faith to say that, yeah, we, we believe there is an original thing. So actually the idea that there's, there's an original uncreated thing before the Big Bang, whether it's a singularity that you believe in, which is basically scientific terminology for we have no idea what it is, uh, or it's a cosmic egg made of pre-matter, or it's, it's a god entity, or it's, it's Michelangelo, or Leonardo, or Raphael, or who's the fourth turtle I'm forgetting? Donatello, thank you, Donatello, does machines, right? The machine, yeah. Uh, the scientist, I forgot the scientist. That's uh, ironically not, uh, did not mean to forget the scientist. Okay, so whatever, this is what everyone, everybody already believes. Everybody already believes whatever came first is uncreated. It exists, it's not contingent upon anything else. Everything that came after that is a result or is contingent upon that first thing, but that first thing is uncreated. So the real philosophical question is, what's the nature of the first thing? 
What is its nature? What's its composition? What's it made of? The thing that triggered everything else, the thing that made everything else. People of faith, we've concluded, we believe that's an intelligent force. There's an intelligent force, what we call God. And people might come up with different formulations of what they think God is, but essentially an intelligent force that made everything. People that are not religious have concluded, no, there's no such thing as that. It's just blind forces. It's matter and blind forces and reactions and reactions to those reactions. That's all it is. And the problem with these, actually, well, it's not a problem necessarily, but, but the issue with these two worldviews are that you cannot prove either of them scientifically. You can't prove either of them scientifically. They're both based on intuition and assumption. Now, people have good reasons for believing both. And this is something that, as people of faith, we have to be mature enough to do this. We have to be able to look at the other side of the argument and say, I respect people for, you know, they have good reasons. They, they genuinely believe them, and they're settled on those reasons. And they're not, they're not, you know, they might not make sense to people of faith, but we have to say, like, okay, people have thought it through. You know, they've got their reasons. They've got, they've got things that they lean on. It's not just made up. They've got things they lean on. But I also think if we're going to do that, people have to do that, do that the other way and say, people of faith, we have reasons as well. We're using our intelligence as well. But just like in both camps, it's based on intuition. It's based on assumption. They're both faith positions. You cannot prove either one scientifically or empirically. Consider this. If you believe that consciousness exists now and you can't actually prove that other people are conscious, you can only be aware, you're only really aware of your own consciousness, all right? So I'm getting philosophical with you today, but it's a science day, so we're going to be all, you know, fancy and, and deep about stuff today, all right? So not that we aren't anyway normally, but uh, you, know, you understand my point. If you believe that you are conscious, that you're consciously aware of your environment, whether or not you can prove that other people are conscious or not, why, why, why could consciousness not exist? If it exists now in this environment, why could it not exist before the Big Bang? What reason would you have to deny it if, you, if you're aware that it's something that is apparent to you right now, that there is consciousness, at least in your own mind? Why could there not be consciousness before everything began in the first place? In Genesis chapter 1, we read it. It says that God spoke and said, let there be light. And what's, what's, cool, what's really cool about this is, if you think about words, what are words? Words, they're, they're spiritual. Now, you can, you can make a word physical, because you, if you say the word, because you can think a word, right? So, so words exist in, in consciousness. But you can, you can say a word out loud, which makes vibrations, which makes it physical in one sense. But you can write it out. You can put it into symbols and, 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 and create it and, and make it you know, something that, that represents the word. Uh, so you can make it physical, but essentially words are spiritual. So God's using his spiritual tools, as it were, by speaking, because a word is abstract, right? What is a word? It's, a, it's something that, you know, it's, not, it's an intangible thing that you use a symbol to represent the word, but the word exists except apart from the physical world, all right? This is the power of words. And you know the power of words in your own life, because when people speak blessings or curses over you, you know how powerful that can be. But this idea, God spoke, he spoke and said, let there be light, and then light came about. This is the creative power of God. Now, the Bible is not it doesn't describe to us wave particles. It doesn't tell us the speed of light. It doesn't tell us about radiation or gravity or, or quantum mechanics. It's not, it's not, the Bible is not concerned with the, 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 the mechanical nature of how all these things happen. Actually, God's word basically tells us to go figure that stuff out. 
That's God's plan, is go and cultivate and catalog and learn and study and figure, go and discover creation. Go and figure it all out and rule over it and take care of it. That's, that's the mandate that we have. So the Bible, it doesn't, it's not telling us about wave particles. The Bible is concerned with who and why. Who made it and why was it made? What is the purpose of it? And this is a fundamental point I want to get across today. Fundamental point. Science deals with facts. Science deals with facts. Religion interacts with and, and is very, you know, is, cares about facts and, and deals with facts as well, but it deals with values. Religion deals with values. You cannot get values from facts. People argue about this all the time. There's a big debate within the scientific community about people will say you can't get an ought from an is. And what they mean by that is that science tells you what something is in measuring it. So it's, it's this. But that doesn't tell you what you ought to do with it or what its purpose is. Science can never define that. Morals can never be derived from facts. Facts can never be used to say this is right and this is wrong. They're, they're two different worlds. Two different worlds. Now, if you were to ask a scientist, why do you do your science? What's the reason? You'll get very non-scientific answers from them. They might say, well, I'm just, just really curious about this thing, or I see this problem in the world and I want to solve it. I think, oh, I've got this, this research that I see this connection between this thing and I, I want to you know, uncover it and discover this thing and make a difference in that. Or, or you might be surprised. They might say, like, I just think I look really good in a lab coat or something, or I'm hoping to fall into a vat of chemicals and turn into a superhero. You know, there might be different statements, different reasons that, that people have, but those are value statements. Science cannot lead you to those opinions, to those thoughts. It's never going to happen. Now, the conflict that, is supposedly, that supposedly exists between religion and science uh, actually is kind of fake news, really. It's the kind of, maybe we could even say some of the original fake news that, that's out there. This idea that there's a war or a conflict between science. There was a book, uh, The Secularization of uh, America, that was published in 2003, successfully argued and proved that there was essentially a cultural strategy that came about at the end of the 19th century. So a group of scientists and uh, academics as well joined forces intentionally with the plan to gin up and create this, this conflict, this supposed conflict between religion and science, that it was a cultural strategy in order to diminish Christian influence in institutions so they could grow their own, their own influence, their own power, their own prestige in those, in those institutions. And they've been very successful at it. So that now when the media talks about religion and science, when people have conversations about religion and science, they think, we think these are two separate worlds that are in complete conflict with each other. In fact, there are many, many scientists that see no contradiction whatsoever between these two worlds. The, real, the, the reality is even, even the, the Catholic Church has official documents that they believe that evolution is a process that God works through. So the idea that the, there's this massive war, there's this massive conflict, that these two things can't go together is fake news. It's far more imagined than it is real. One study that's often cited is this idea that uh, only 7% of scientists believe in a personal God. 
and this is used, and it's 7%, not a great number, right? Really low number, almost non-existent, very low. Only 7%, so scientists are supposed to be the, the most rational, most educated, you know, our best minds, and only 7% of them believe in a personal God. Therefore, you're an idiot if you believe in a personal God. The problem with this is, as we should all be aware, is that studies are constantly misused and abused. We're aware of this, right? Anytime you see a statistic, anytime you see a study, the first question you have to ask is, is it peer-reviewed? Who said this? Where does it come from? Have they actually looked at the data? Like, you have to ask all the... That's the most annoying thing, because you can never trust anything anymore. But it's, again, more fake news. So this study is a misrepresentation of the questions that were asked of the scientists. So a bunch of scientists are being lumped together in the atheist category, which is a dishonest interpretation of that study. There are, in fact, way better studies that show that the majority of scientists are either deeply religious or moderately religious. Even Einstein. Think about Einstein, one of the greatest minds. He believed in God. Although, to be honest, he did utterly reject belief in barbers. Thank you. I'll be here each week. Now, Einstein didn't believe in the God of the Bible. He didn't believe in, 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 in Jesus. But the fact that such a brilliant mind had a spiritual perspective means you're not an idiot for having a spiritual perspective. Let me reference two studies that were done, one in uh, 1916 and one in 1997. 80 years apart from each other, the same study was done asking scientists one or several questions. One question was, do you uh, believe in a God who communicates directly with humanity, at least through prayer? That was the, the question. And uh, two guys, uh, the second of those studies, the one done in 1997, two guys uh, by the names of uh, Edward Larson and uh, Larry Whitham, they did the study and they, they published their findings in a scientific journal Nature. This is where they published their findings. And their conclusion, after getting a consensus of views from, of views from scientists on that question, 40%, 40% of scientists said they believed in a God who directly communicates with humanity. Another 40%, 40% said they didn't believe, and 20% said they weren't sure, which means 60% are in the non-atheist category. Think about it. 80 years apart, those two studies had almost identical results to them. And other studies show that actually religious belief and spiritual belief is growing amongst scientists in our day. It's becoming, they're becoming more religious, even more recently. So if the 7% fake news study is used as a reason that you should not believe, and then you discover that that's wrong, does the point still remain? that you should believe based on the consensus of science? Because if it does, then, you should, then, then these other studies should put you in a position where you say, no, I, I actually should, I probably should believe. I should believe something. Or at least at the very least, I should be, at least be agnostic. That's a little bit more consistent. What about something specific though? Let's, let's get more, let's drill deeper into this. What about something like evolution? How, you know, does evolution disprove God or disprove the Bible? There are a range of views amongst Christians about the subject of evolution. I think this is true that most Christians believe in what's called natural selection, right? The idea that in any creature that you have, or you know, species that you have traits that adapt to the environment. So if you have traits that aren't well suited to the environment, those traits die out. 
and then traits that are well suited to an environment, those ones are selected, and so those ones carry on, right? I think everyone gets, that's a very simple idea. I think Christians look at that and say, that seems to make sense. You know, even people who aren't, you know, who have other faiths as well, you know, I think would, would buy the same thing. But it's not just Christians, but the other people, even other scientists who maybe aren't religious as well, do have big questions about what's called speciation. Speciation is the idea of one species evolving into an entirely different species. There, you know, can you get the micro level to go to the macro level, right? What's called sometimes called macroevolution. The different theories, different things about it that are presented. But a lot of scientists would say these are unsatisfactory explanations to explain speciation. So a lot of Christians question it. More questions. How does it actually work? There's gaps in certain things. Certain things we don't, we, we, we think genetically you can look at things and maybe draw some conclusions, but we're not entirely sure about this. So there's a range of beliefs amongst Christians on this subject. There's also uh, Christians that believe uh, in what's called a young earth, right? That things haven't been around for that long. It's been several thousand years, 10,000 years, right? But then there are other Christians that say, no, no, no. The, the science has already settled on this, that we're, it's you know, the universe is billions of years old and the, the earth is, is millions of years old, right? That, that there's, there's thoughtful Christians on, on both sides of this. Now, people will look at Genesis and they'll say, well, it says that there were seven days of creation, and on one side of it, people will say the word day that is used to describe that is used in other places to talk about today. It's this day. So therefore, it's got to be just a 24-hour period. So it's got to be a young earth situation. Or other people will say, well, the word day can be used also in, in the original language. It's used to when people talk about, you know, in my father's day. So they're talking about the previous generation, which is not a 24-hour period, but a bigger period of time. And so say, so, well, the word can be used that way as well. So, so some people will say, well, it's, it's not 24-hour periods, it's longer periods. Thoughtful, believing Christians on both sides of that. Even the idea on the seventh day, it says God entered his rest, and then it indicates that God has been in that place of rest since then, which is a really long day. So if you ever have a, next time you have a really long day, remember it's not that long. Remember that. But even scripture tells us that a day is like a thousand years to God. So there are thoughtful reasons on both sides. Now, some people will, will look at the Bible and say, like, they'll conclude, hey, look, God, you know, he formed people and then breathed his spirit into them and made them alive. Others will say, no, I think God worked through a process of evolution where, you know, we were evolving and then we got to a certain point that then God breathed his spirit into us and we became conscious at that point. There are thoughtful Christians on both sides of this. But then some people will, will, will respond to that and say, like, no, that you have to have cycles of, death and life in order to have evolution and death didn't come in until after God made people so there's problems with that you honestly you can spend a lot of time I don't want to get too bogged down in the weeds of these things but you can spend a lot of time debating these things the point I'm trying to make is that you have thoughtful believers that really care about each other that really love each other that have different conclusions about how evolution and creation about how science and religion how these things intersect and relate to each other but what we can't do is we can't actually I would say the way that we talk about this amongst ourselves is more important than getting the exact right answer. Because at the end of the day, you still believe God is basically in control and made everything anyway. At the end of the day, that's what we all believe. And if you don't believe that, then you don't really have Christian faith. So you might, we might have differences about exactly how some of the processes work or how, exactly what some of the verses mean. Some people look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and they say, you know, the structure of this, the literary structure of it, is more like a song. It's, it, and it's trying to describe to us the meaning of it, not just the, the, the mechanics of it. That's one, way, that's one way that people look at it. Actually, C.S. Lewis believed that. 
And a lot, a lot of Christians really hold him in high regard and high respect, and he believed, believed in evolution, believed that God worked through uh, evolution. We're free to believe those different things. I think how we talk about it is much more important than do we have all those exact answers perfectly worked out. Francis Collins, one of the most prominent scientists and geneticists of our time, he, in his early career, actually discovered the gene for cystic fibrosis, and he head, headed up the International Coalition for the Human Genome Pro Project that mapped out uh, human genetics. And he wrote a, a book called uh, The Language of God. He uh, is quoted as saying this, famously said this, he wrote this, he says, I was an atheist, finding no reason to postulate the existence of any truths outside of mathematics, physics, and chemistry. But then I went to medical school and encountered life and death issues at the bedsides of my patients. Challenged by one of those patients who asked, what do you believe, doctor? I began searching for answers. Did I come to the point of being convinced by scientific proof that God was real and that Jesus was the Son of God? No. I don't know people who have come to that by scientific proof. But I did realize, for me, this incredible hunger for not just knowing that God was there, but having a relationship with Him. So for me, faith and science always, from the time of my conversion, seemed incredibly complementary, synergistic. We have to remember this, that the theory of evolution gives us an explanation of how simple life forms might become more complex over time. That's what it does. And it's actually not bad at doing that. It's actually a pretty, it fits with a lot of the stuff that you discover. It's not bad at doing that. But here's what evolution can never do. It can never be used as an overarching explanation to tell you why you exist and what the meaning of life is and that can guide you and give you purpose in life. It can never, ever be used as an understanding of your reality. Not once. Evolution itself actually has many unanswered questions. One of them, let's talk about a couple of them. One of them is the actual the origin of life. The origin of life. It's kind of embarrassing, actually. But science does not have a satisfactory answer. It's claimed to, but scientists are being more honest about this now, but there's not a satisfactory answer for how the first cell was created. So the idea that millions of years ago that lightning struck a soup of chemicals and created the first cell uh, is very problematic because you, for the lightning to create the protein, usually when lightning strikes things, you know, it's usually destroying things, but if you go with the, the theory, it creates a protein. Here's the problem is, so people have said, because you have millions of years of time, you have so much time, or billions of years, you have so much time that, that all kind of things can happen, right? You can, you can have life coming from inanimate objects and from these chemicals. The problem is a protein cannot exist by itself for hardly any length of time. It needs something very crucial in order to survive. It needs a membrane. It has to have a skin to it. And scientists have no idea how that membrane was created. Zero. Currently, the current scientific thinking in our world today is that there is not only an unsatisfactory, but an, there is, it's not believable. The origin of life from a scientific explanation is not believable today. And many scientists are waking up to this and actually being honest about it, saying, because you can't repeat it. There's no laboratory experiment where you can shoot lightning into chemicals and say, we created a cell. We did it. Because the complexity of the membrane and the protein to be in the membrane, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable to think about. It. And this, is, this leads us to another problem 
uh, with the theory of evolution and just life coming from inanimate um, objects is the probability issue, the probability issue. So astronomer Fred Hoyle uh, is a very well known for this. He calculated, he estimated the, the improbability uh, that life could actually have begun this way. And he's saying it's a number, uh, hopefully I don't screw this up, it's a number with a one to a number, which is one to, I'm not good with numbers, but it's one, <laughs> followed by uh, a number with 40,000 zeros after it. So he, he gave this analogy, famous analogy. Some people hate this analogy, but I like it, actually. The, the idea of it's, it's more probable that a hurricane would go through a junkyard and randomly assemble a Boeing 747 than that the, a single cell even itself could be created and then evolve into us. He, we got a quote from him here, from Fred Hoyle. He says, if the beginnings of life were not random, they must, therefore, have been pr the product of purposeful intelligence. They must have been the product of pur purposeful intelligence. Now, maybe there are good answers to some of these objections or some of these unanswered things. Maybe we've got good answers. Maybe the probability thing uh, is not that big a deal. I don't know. Maybe uh, the origin of life thing, the, the first cell, maybe there'll be something we'll figure out at some other point. But maybe there is. But that's, that doesn't matter. Because here, here's what this proves to us. It proves to us that you cannot look at faith and say it's stupid to believe in God. There's no good reason to believe in God. And you definitely cannot look at science and say it answers all the things that we need to know and that it's fully settled or that it's not also changing over time. You can't compare them in that way. It's not fair. Nobody should do that. Rather than science being evidence against God, actually it can be evidence for God. Let me give you three things that science can be, ways that science can be evidence for God. I want, let me talk about artificial intelligence. So for years, people would laugh at, at Christians, especially, saying that, you know, we can go alone in our houses and pray, and, you know, that there's going to be a God out there that's going to hear us all and answer our questions and, you know, change things in the real world for us. And people mocked that and said, that's ridiculous. That would never happen. And then, you know, now we have Google and Alexa, right? So the idea, artificial intelligence... In our lifetime, my kids, by the time my kids are my age, it's going to be freaky what we, the Terminators are, are going to come for us, right? So artificial intelligence is going to become more and more advanced, stronger and stronger. It's going to actually mimic God-like power. I don't want to freak anyone out, but it will, be, it will be so impressive, so powerful at some point that people who have denied God will start to think, wait a second, there's this tangible thing that we have now <laughs> that is beyond anything, beyond any intelligence that we have that does things that we don't even understand what it's doing and why it's doing them. It's beyond our control, outside of our control. Can figure out things that we can't even figure out. And it's going to actually help bridge the gap. People are going to suddenly see something tangible. They say, that's godlike. And when people have mocked it before, I think, I think people are going to open their eyes and say, maybe there is an intelligence that's out there, an intelligence in the universe that's out there, not just a random intelligence, but a personal intelligence, God. Second thing that science can be a proof for God is DNA, DNA. Essentially, our bodies run on an operating system. You have an operating system, code. You're programmed a certain way. Now, the prominent atheist and scientist Richard Dawkins We'll, we'll look at DNA and say, now, look, look, I know it looks like it's designed. It really looks like it's a programming language, but you just have to remind yourself it's not. It's not. And he has no good reason for saying that. 
other than he just doesn't want to believe in God. That's what it appears to me. It looks designed. It looks like code. It's incredibly complex. It's a huge it's science. The more things we discover in the world, the more things point to there's something bigger going on than we pre previously realized. The third thing I want to point to is anti-realism. Anti-realism. There's two schools of thought of, of um, philosophical science uh, within, uh, the sci within science itself. Two, two schools of thought. One is realism, which is the idea that once science discovers something, it's fact. It's just fact. That's exactly what it is. That's one school of thought. The other school of thought is anti-realism. Most scientists are anti-realists. The majority of scientists fall in the second camp of being anti-realists, where they say, once you have a scientific discovery, it's an approximation of what is real. And this is a much more honest conclusion. They're coming up with an approximation. Because actually, it's a real problem even in science itself, because when you try to measure something or observe something, you actually interact with it and change its very nature. So you can't fully ever discern the reality of something without interacting with it and therefore without already changing it. So you can never know what reality actually is. That's why anti-realism is a more intellectually cohesive and satisfying philosophy within science. But here's how it proves God. Because it makes the God hypothesis credible. Because within science, it actually has, it has a, actually some humility where it says the conclusions we have might not be right. They might not be right. Now, you might say, okay, I can get on board maybe with the, you know, God's, uh, the Einstein, uh, God's, uh, the, excuse me, I'm losing my words here. Einstein's God, I can get on board with Einstein's God or with maybe there's a consciousness in the universe, you know, before everything was made. You know, okay, okay, it takes faith to believe both things. All right, so maybe I'm open to that. But seriously, like the, the miracles in the Bible, the supernatural claims of the Bible, like it's just... It's a bridge too far. Like I can get my head into a certain space, but it's a bridge too far. How do we reconcile these things? How do we cope with this? How do we respond to this? Consider this. The existence of, to deny the existence of miracles is the same thing as denying the existence of God. Those are exactly the same beliefs. If you say there cannot be a miracle, you're also saying there cannot be a God. Now, the other way around is more consistent. If you say there is no God, therefore there's no miracles, that's a more consistent belief to hold. But what you can't do is you can't say there can't be miracles, but there could be a God. Because if God is real, then what that means is he's the highest source, the uncreated source, the means by which everything was made, the means by which everything else is contingent upon, which means if God made everything in the first place, then it's actually, it's actually easier for him to just rearrange the things. It's less work than what he did in the first place to just change a few things, which are miracles. Somebody who has a purely materialistic view of the world, who says, you know, there's only chemistry and physics and biology, there's only these things, is of course going to say that miracles are impossible because they, there's, there's nothing in their mind that says that could transcend that, that could be outside of that realm. So of course it's not going to make any sense to them. But consider this. Consider time travel which Einstein's theory allows for. If you didn't know that, Einstein himself said time travel was, was quite possible. His theory allowed for it, which the greatest application of time travel would be to go back and fix everybody's haircuts. That would be a very useful thing to do. What, so you've got time travel. What about uh, uh, quantum entanglement? Right? It's not just, just 
you know, Star Trek that talks about this. It's a real thing. The idea that you actually have atoms in different locations to each other that mimic each other, that one is doing one thing, the other one copies it. And science doesn't know why it happens. There's no discernible connection between these things, yet they mimic each other. They're in different locations. Nobody knows how it happens. What about, consider the multiverse theory, right? This is the idea that there's a limitless amount of Lokis and, and that we happen to exist in a universe where there was only six episodes, which is a, a cosmic injustice, but I digress. So if you could manipulate time, it would look like a miracle. If you could harness quantum entanglement, it would look like a miracle, right? If you could traverse the multiverse, it would look like a miracle. Miracles are just better science. That's all they are. If God made everything in the first place, then he's the greatest scientist. He's just doing science. He's just doing the original science just by making things and changing things. Talking about miracles, the Bible tells us some interesting things. So it tells us specifically the greatest miracle that the Christians believe in, the resurrection of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 28, uh, verse 17, it tells us there were lots of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Lots of people saw Jesus after he had been crucified. They knew he had been crucified, and they saw him from the dead. Many, many people, eyewitnesses. Now, you don't have forensic evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, but we have uh, eyewitness testimony, which is historical evidence uh, for the resurrection of Jesus. It still takes faith to believe it, but there is some uh, evidence, actually, that points you in that direction. And so the Bible tells us there were people that saw him alive, and they believed, and they worshipped him, and they you know, wrote you know, the story's down, we have the Gospels, we have the accounts of it. But it also tells us in Matthew 28, 17, that some people doubted. They saw the miracle with their own eyes, and they still didn't believe. Even ancient people who were probably more spiritual than we are, probably more willing to accept all kinds of spiritual explanations for things than we are in our context, they still didn't believe. What an admission in the Bible it's counterproductive, actually, for the Bible to have that in there. You realize how, counter, how counterproductive that is? It's telling us that even, even people with a spiritual perspective seeing a miracle will still strongly doubt that it's, they'll say, no, there's got to be another explanation for it. It can't be this. It can't be this. The miracles that Jesus did were not magic tricks. They weren't, you know, he didn't make trees burst into flames or shoot, you know, doves out of his garments or levitate or do card tricks or mentalism. He didn't do any of that stuff. He was, you know, people referred to him as the son of David, but not, not David Blaine. Jesus, Jesus, didn't, Jesus didn't suspend the natural order of things and like fly around and do these bizarre things just to do tricks and look impressive to people. He didn't, he didn't do that. What Jesus, the miracles that Jesus did were a restoration of a creation that have been broken. There are restoration. Because God did not create a world of suffering. He didn't create a world of disease, a world of pain, a world of sickness. He didn't create that world, a world of hunger. And so the miracles of Jesus, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, overcoming death, these are all the things that we're trying to use technology to do. And we don't believe that they're impossible. We actually believe, believe that these things can be solved by technology. So Jesus, in all of his miracles, is not doing anything impossible. He's just undoing the things that are abnormal. So his miracles, might, they might be a challenge to our mind sometimes, but you know what they are? They're, they're, they're deeply a promise to our hearts. 
that God is restoring everything, that he's making the things back to the way that they should have been in the first place. Hebrews 3, sorry, Hebrews 11, verse 3, we read it earlier. It says, by faith, still by faith, but by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God is spirit. God is spirit. So God is outside of the scope of scientific inquiry. He's outside. And you can use some science to investigate these things, but essentially if something is beyond the physical realm, if it's really there, it's outside of the scope of science. Science can't touch it because of the very nature, the very difference of what it is. And God is spirit. So you, you might say, well, how, how can you ever know? How can you ever get close to that? How can you ever discern these things? And the answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus, because in Jesus, God became visible. What was made was made out of what was invisible, words. Words are invisible. You can't see them. They're in your head. They're conscious things. You can make, you can make them. You can write them down. That's what Jesus, Jesus is like the written word. Written, I mean, he literally, the Bible calls him the word of God, right, that came to us. So in Jesus, you have the melding together of two worlds. You have the melding together of the world of values and the world of meaning. And you have, have the, the, the melding together of the world of observation, and the world of matter, those two things come together and sync up in the person of Jesus. If you want to find value, you want to find hope, and you want to find your purpose, you will not find it in science. But you can find it in the greatest scientist, in Almighty God, who made everything and made you and delights in you and can save you. And His plan is to save you from evil, from your own evil and from the evil of others. That's his plan. That's what he's doing in the world. And he sent his son to show us that. He sent his son to bridge the gap between our world and the spiritual world that we might be reconnected to God, that we might understand why, why we're here, what, what all this is all about, and how we can know God and be found in God. And the way it all happened, the way it all went down, was in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the greatest miracle of all, where he exchanged his life for our life. He poured out his righteousness so that we could receive it. And he took on our sin so that we could be free from it. We need to sing to Jesus. We need to respond to Jesus for what he has done for us. I hope you've been helped today. I hope that if your faith was weak, it's been strengthened today. If you, if you don't have faith, that you can step closer to Jesus or come all the way in today. Think about how you can respond. How do you need to respond today? We've got this women's retreat coming up. Maybe that's how you need to respond. You need to say, yeah, I'm going to do that. We've got small groups. Maybe you need to join one of those. What kind of different ways? Maybe you want to serve, get involved here. You want to give today. You want to give your life to Jesus, get baptized. We've got all kinds of ways to respond. You can do that, uh, as Natalie talked about, through that digital connect card. You can text the word enjoy to 94,000. That's one way you can uh, communicate with us. I'll also be in the lobby afterwards. I'd love to talk to you if you want to connect.